0: This is the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Matthew Weldon. And
1: I'm Mary McCluskey.
0: The 116th Congress just began recently with uh, newly elected members being sworn into the House of Representatives. Today, we're going to talk about what we can expect from the new Congress, and we're going to learn from our colleague, Robert Vega. Robert is a policy advisor to the USCCB Subcommittee for the Defense of Marriage. He's one of our experts on policies related to sexuality policies which often affect religious liberty. So he collaborates regularly with the Religious Liberty staff. We're glad you could take the time to, to come and talk with us today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Aaron. I appreciate you having me. Robert, you're relatively new to the conference, but you have worked in D.C. for several years, and you've been involved in these issues surrounding, surrounding marriage and sexuality and the church, church teaching. How did you get involved in these issues? Um, so it definitely was not intentional, all right at once. Um,
2: even before coming to live and work in D.C., I actually uh, went went to college here as well at George Washington, and all because I had this kind of, you know, naive, um, nerdy desire to get involved in politics and change the world for the better. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> and you know, for the most part, I. Uh, for most of my life, uh, at least up until that point, it, that was purely an economic thought, like what are the things that can be done to enhance uh, human prosperity in our country? And as, you know, as I got older and went, you know, went through law school and started um, working on Capitol Hill for a, uh, a member of the House of Representatives, I started to think more and more and see more and more how the economic well-being of people at large, was very much impacted by the well-being of the family structure. Mm-hmm. And I started to you know, realize how over the course of several decades, we've seen the separation of marriage and childbearing and sexual activity all from one another, mm-hmm. all of that going on during the uh, growth of the welfare state. And I just kind of began to correlate all this and realize, you know, men in particular then seem to lose a sense of responsibility and, you know, a sense of respect and the potency of their own sexual activity with women and have less necessity to take care of any children that may result from any relationships. And suddenly I have a situation in, you know, where about half of children are now born out of wedlock. And Mm -hmm. in a lot of cases, fathers aren't in the picture. And then, those you know mothers and children are usually socioeconomically less well off than their counterparts who live in you know a two parent married household um then the state has to step in and you know you have all these different outcomes and levels of public involvement that come to play and it all kind of centers around what's happening in the nucleus of the family mm-hmm. um you know I was watching a um congressional committee hearing once on on some particular legislation and every member of the committee for uh until about three fourths of the way through they take their turns going along the the dais the big podium and you know each of them spoke about the plight of single mothers democrat and republican Mm -hmm. and they spoke very sympathetically about the plight of single mothers and how that necessitated some sort of you know either adopting the legislation that was on the table or amending it and it kind of drove me nuts, honestly, to think, well, none of them are saying like, "Well, why are there so many single mothers mm-hmm. out there? You know, what's going on in society that's you know leading you know to these situations?" And finally, one member of Congress did bring that up, but it took it was only just one out of about forty members of the committee. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's you know that that's something a lot of people tend to neglect. They tend to think of the social issues as squishy or just for religious people and or you know just for sentimentality. But uh, I think they do have a lot of practical outcomes uh-huh. for, you know, not just economics, but um, criminal justice system yeah, yeah. as well, mm-hmm. drug use. And that's not to say certainly that, you know, any particular family situation is going to yield any particular you know, outcome in terms of children's well-being. There's plenty of resilient people out there and there's plenty of people out there in married households and affluent households that, you know, turn out uh, having severe troubles. You know, this mm-hmm. is all just kind of. In general. Uh, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it's interesting because, you know, working on the pastoral side of things in the pro-life office, like, Robert, I like I've seen this play out. So it makes perfect sense to me. But it's so interesting, like in the political realm that people wouldn't make those connections necessarily, you
2: know? Yeah, well, and I I, I don't know to what extent it may just be that they're not thinking about it because maybe they, you know, politicians are not very often the policy wonks themselves, Mm -hmm. so to speak. So they may not always be, you know, thinking at that deep of a level. But I also think, uh, frankly, it doesn't always behoove the party's interest on either side Mm. to kind of dig deep and touch these kind of raw areas where we're so wounded. You know, either you want to cover them up and ameliorate the situation at a superficial level, or you only want to like kind of crusade against certain aspects of, you know, certain aspects of uh, family issues, but not risk offending too many people inadvertently or, you know, uh, causing too much controversy. Mm. And so I think there's a, a mix of an aversion and, and also just, a, dare I say, kind of just a lack of critical thinking to a certain
0: degree. Mm. I mean, it, does, it seems like recently, though, more people are talking about this connection between family life and economic well-being. The, the relationship between those two things. And I mean, in a lot of ways, um, part of what you're describing comports very well with, with what, how the church talks about with church teaching. So I have been kind of hopeful that the church uh, here at the Bishop's Conference, we might be able to kind of speak to this issue and speak to this relationship that you're talking about and maybe be heard? Because I get the sense that people might be more opened up to hearing or hearing more about these kinds of connections between these two things. I don't know if you get that sense also. I'd say a bit, and I think the church is in a unique opportunity
2: to speak to that because the church is not traditionally aligned in kind of the red-blue Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, way. We're, we're the uh, like, political
1: orphans a lot. Exactly, mm-hmm.
2: exactly. You know, we have, you know, people have different degrees of focus in different areas, but ultimately the church teaching is, you know, really transcends any political order, you know, in uh, particularly in such a new country as mm-hmm. ours in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. And so I think we do have a, you know, a very potent voice for that if people are willing to listen. And, you know, I, I think perhaps more and more people are, you know. I know there was this uh, article recently mm-hmm. uh, out by uh, Tucker Carlson mm-hmm. uh, that uh, kind of touched on a lot of these issues, and but and it caught a lot of um, steam uh, from a wide range of people, as far as I could tell. But the other thing was, it was it did so because it was so novel, even though it's speaking to these yeah, yeah. truths that you know we may feel are you know kind of timeless and have been of concern for decades if not centuries but but it was really novel for people to hear of that yeah and yeah. you know if it's novel so be it i'm glad that it's
0: yeah getting yeah. out there and it may kind of open things up at least a little bit that's that's yeah. my hope at least to yeah kind of open up the conversation so
2: robert and, and certainly and then, that's not to say that that article perfectly encapsulated yeah, the yeah. church teaching but it got a conversation going about these issues.
1: So, uh, so in a nutshell, I did not read the article, but I'm going to look it up. So in a nutshell, I mean, was, was Tucker Carlson was making this same kind of connection between family life and economic uh, challenges? I'd say so. Okay. Gotcha. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. For the, for the listeners who may not have read it like me. (laughs) So.
0: Well, I wonder, I mean, since we're kind of talking a little bit about church teaching, um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about how these things affect you as a Catholic. I mean, I think that I have, I often think that the policy advisors have just one of the more interesting jobs, policy advisors and the government relations or the people or the lobbyists here at the conference, you have an interesting position because you really are fully in the world of Washington politics and you're completely in the world of the church And I think for a lot of people, we can compartmentalize those two things, but you guys can't do that. (laughs) And so, you know, I mean, give us some insight. How do you do it? The the
1: AKA, how do you sleep at night? Do you sleep well or worry all night long? Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
0: How do I do it is carefully.
2: (laughs) Um, I think the uh, virtue to be practiced uh, there is prudence. Mm. Um, You know, there's the, you know, there's the teaching that I think the church can apply to a whole range of morality, which is that the ends don't justify the means. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a human temptation, uh, perhaps in a lot of aspects of life, but I think very much in politics as well, to think that the ends do justify the means, that, you know, as long as we get this ultimate victory and, you know, save this many people, be it from, uh, you know, abortion or be it for some sort of moral corruption, um, be it from, you know, some other sort of bad outcome that we're trying to help people from like you know as long as we can accomplish this good we can you know engage in any you know devious means necessary and mm-hmm. and that's you know a temptation that you know on the on a regular basis i need to remind myself to you know to work against honestly and you know pray about and i'm particularly blessed, I suppose, in, in a way, uh, right outside my door, there's a, a beautiful painting of Jesus with his uh, sacred heart aglow. Mm. Mm. And he's kind of got this look in his eye that's both uh, friendly, but also kind of knowing, like he's <laughs> kind of keeping an eye on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And every every couple of days, I kind of, you know, just make sure I yeah, catch myself and, you know, just kind of stop and make sure I stop and look at it and take, you know, take stock and take perspective. Like, am I... Thinking like a political crusader on some agenda and, you know, to heck with everything else. Mm -hmm. Or am I really living as a missionary disciple, as a Christian in the public sphere, Mm you know, through my work and, you know, in my personal life and in what I'm, you know, am I using that to try to accomplish what's really best for everyone you know, not purely as I would desire it, but as much in keeping with uh, my understanding of what the church calls us, you know, to be and work toward as, you know, as
0: possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's helpful because, you know, kind of, I think part of what you may be describing is something like you have to examine your conscience regularly to do the kind of work you do. And, and I just think that that would be a good practice for all Catholics you know, I mean, when everything has been so become so politically charged, it's just helpful, I think, to kind of ask ourselves and kind of look look at ourselves or reflect on on kind of on our attitudes towards some of these different political issues. And like you say, um, not just we may talk about what goals we're trying to achieve, but even the means of achieving different mm-hmm. goals. I mean, certainly, people of goodwill come to different conclusions, but. But it's even just kind of reflecting and examining ourselves just seems to me so important. And it's I mean it's absolutely necessary for you. But I think it I think all of us need to do that. Yeah,
2: no, I think it's would definitely be
0: uh recommendable.
2: And, you know, as you mentioned, the kind of political atmosphere too. Like there's this uh you know, another temptation in particular that's out there now. Uh, you know, I feel like is this, you know, kind of tribalism, right? Mm. Where um people really get entrenched in their camp and against other camps of people ideologically. And, you know, that's ultimately not what we're called to be, right? Like, you know, who is, you know, who is my neighbor? Who is my brother? Mm -hmm. Is something
0: we really need to keep asking ourselves, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, on to the Congress. I think it's mostly bad news in some ways, or at least what we're talking about is some of the bad news. We'll get that out of the way. Maybe you'll offer us some hope uh, here at the end. But uh, first, let's talk about the Do No Harm Act. It's a bill that's already been introduced, I believe, and my understanding is that it more or less kind of guts the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, can you talk about what the bill is, what it does? You probably have to give a little explainer on what the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is also to kind of explain the Do No Harm Act. What What is, what is it? What is the Do No Harm Act? Sure. Well, as, as you mentioned, I probably should get to the Basis of
2: how it came about in the first place. Okay. So if you'll yeah, yeah. indulge me for going back a couple Good, of decades. Please. Oh wow! <laughs> um, in 1990, there was the Supreme Court case Employment Division versus Smith, and I apologize to any of your mm-hmm. listeners uh, for whom this may be a review, but
0: no, this is great.
2: Um, but that that case um, sought to clean up what had been a very messy First Amendment uh, law, constitutional law jurisprudence. Which, up until then, had developed this kind of complicated scheme uh, by which people could be given exemptions from laws based on their um, you know religious practices. So in particular, this involved you know Sabbath worship, um, Sa- um, Sabbath working, mm-hmm. or you know people who wanted to have their business open on Sundays because they needed it closed on you know on their Sabbath or people mm-hmm. who you know couldn't work on the Sabbath, but they needed to, um, be eligible for unemployment benefits. Mm-hmm. So Employment Division versus Smith involved this involved uh, the use of peyote by Native Americans. And it was held, actually by Justice Scalia that a generally applicable law that does not really have anything purposely to do with religion, such as a ban on certain substances, which would include uh, peyote, would be you know would be upheld against people despite their religious interests. So, someone using you know a substance for a religious purpose could still wind up on the wrong side of the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was actually shocking to people on both sides of the aisle uh, who wanted to allow there to be room for religious liberty to you know continue to flourish. In the United States. And so they uh, developed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, which passed in Congress in 1993, uh, unanimously in the House and 97 to 3 in the Senate. It was wow. sponsored on the House side by then representative Chuck Schumer, actually. And what it did was it formalized this test that the Supreme Court had used in prior contexts and other contexts, which said if a law is going to impose a, a substantial burden on the religious practice of someone, be it purposely and directly or indirectly and not on purpose, it had to further a compelling government interest and uh, be you know, narrowly tailored as closely as possible to fulfilling that interest. So it couldn't do any more than it absolutely needed to to fulfill that interest. And that's in you know in legal terms in the court that's a pretty hard test to meet particularly in the latter components and so that allows people to get their religious exemptions from a whole range of laws within you know the realm of reason certainly well the supreme court actually then overturned part of that a few years later then in another case at the city of Bernie versus flores mm-hmm. where they held that congress could not tell the courts what to do in terms of reviewing state laws under the first amendment by by way of this religious freedom restoration act and it could only the federal government could only limit itself and so that religious freedom restoration act we'll call it rfra from here on out to <laughs> shorten it could only apply to federal law fast forward about 20 years and you've got a you know situation where it's you know no longer minority religious groups such as Native Americans, you know, kind of exclusively getting hurt by government overreach, although that still happens. You have mm-hmm. cases involving the use of eagle feathers. You have uh, cases involving um, uh, Muslims being able to uh, grow their beards uh, when in custody. Mm-hmm. And these religious cases are still very much salient and important today. Uh, but you also see essentially the majority religion, you know, Christianity, all in our country also having to defend itself for more government encroachment. And so the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was cited uh, quite a bit in the lead up to and decision in the Hobby Lobby case with respect to uh, abortifacient contraceptives being mandated for employer health care coverage. And around that time, I'd say like the, you know, there had been a, a more of a divide on the religious liberty front and, you know, fewer and fewer you know, people of the Democratic Party were fans of that legislation, but especially when Hobby Lobby, Hobby Lobby came mm-hmm. to pass, um, that really came to a head. And so now you've got a situation where a law that was once almost unanimously supported is really vilified by a good portion of the policymakers in Washington. And it is in that spirit, finally, where we get to the Do No Harm Act right. of today.
0: Um, that's great, great background. That's very helpful. I think. <laughs> yeah, really. And you have the whole.
1: And it's so interesting, but do no harm. That's a medical term. That's Hippocrates, right? So, what is the right. what what is in the Do No Harm Act, uh, Robert? So the idea
2: is in the in, in the Do No Harm Act, um, which introduced by uh, Congressman uh, Joe Kennedy, is that RIFRA shall not apply to discrimination laws. Of various kinds civil rights act americans with disabilities act um certain other that also some other things the family medical leave act and it also leaves itself open to uh, not apply to a range of other laws it says including but not limited to essentially mm-hmm. and then also child uh, labor laws and child labor laws and things like that actually which is something we might you know be able to you know look at you know uh, it doesn't catch as much press but something we'd be able to you know look at and consider and examine a little more closely but when it comes to these anti-discrimination laws, it's like, well, okay, that sounds good. But, you know, the idea, the idea from the sponsors is well, the religious freedom restoration act is to make sure you don't go to jail for smoking sacramental peyote, or perhaps in the Catholic case, um, you know, underage drinking of sacramental wine, you know, the idea is to protect you from the government Mm -hmm. uh, encroaching on you in that way. But it's not to use the terms of the supporters It's not supposed to be a license to discriminate against, you know, frankly, those who would self-identify as, you know, having a sexual orientation of, you know, a certain type of people who have a ascribed to themselves a certain gender identity. And, you know, to an extent, you know, I think that's, you know, okay, and that we don't, you know, we don't want the butcher, the baker and the candlestick maker like refusing to serve people, you know, on completely irrelevant grounds based on their own, you know, personal practices and inclinations uh, but the problem you get into, and that we're seeing with non-discrimination laws in states and cities already, is you know what do you do with women's shelters, and when a biological man you know wants to enter a women's shelter mm-hmm. uh, for women who you know are vulnerable and traumatized, mm-hmm. you know on you know on very hard times, you know what do you do in the case of our, you know, Catholic or other faith faith based, you know, adoption and foster care agencies where, you know, we believe that the best situation for a child mate, you know, is with a married mother and father and, you know, we're unable to work with same sex couples. You know, these sorts of areas with, you know, our Catholic and, you know, in the case of some other, you know, denominations as well, where our charitable services or our ministries that may be not precisely religious, you know, the government still can't come into the houses of worship and dictate who's, you know, teaching and what are they teaching. But um, when it comes to our other ministries and works, are we able to do that in accordance with our faith? Or do we, are we at risk of being put in a situation where we have to choose between shutting down and not serving people at all? Or, you know, being forced to serve people in ways that, you know, violate our understanding of, um, you know, anthropology and what's, you know, what's the best proposal for human flourishing mm-hmm.
1: so robert the word harm what the the proponents of this legislation like what harm are they arguing is going to come to people like in the present situation
2: so in their you know in their view there's i think two harms one is this term that's been growing in currency lately which is this dignitary harm which is essentially you know your feelings are hurt because of oh because of that's uh, hard to legislate based on a characteristic Hmm. well people people certainly try um okay uh but another you know another harm you know that i think they're worried about is in their view there are sympathetic characters on the other side they you know and and you know uh, they think you know while a couple you know a same-sex couple that's you know you know, trying to adopt should have, you know, the right to do so from every every avenue they possibly can. And if any one avenue is closed, even though others are open, that's still just a concrete injury of discrimination against them. Or, you know, if someone is turned away from a shelter, like certainly that's a sympathetic character in their view who they're, and they're imagining then gets kicked out to the cold. Whereas, you know, in my experience from all I've ever heard is that no, a faith-based shelter is not kicking someone out to the cold just because they can't accept them there. They're going to try to refer them to the next best place,
1: right.
2: or or all el- or if all else fails, at least a hospital for for some immediate emergency, you know, caretaking. And it's so um,
1: interesting because some, like in the case of the shelter, you know, there are I mean, there are legitimate reasons why a man who identifies as a woman walking into a shelter, I want to stay there. Like, there are legitimate, there are actually potentially more harm done to the women there. Then harmed onto his feelings or his rights to identify as a woman, or, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, that's very interesting. Well, and also, exactly I guess, right. so they, are they also arguing then, or they may not be arguing this, but ultimately what happens is, um, the right to religious liberty of people who run faith based organizations is being, um, slammed, is being totally, uh, totally restricted. Is that what eventually would happen in some of these cases?
2: That the right for the, these organizations to continue to operate would be restricted. Yeah, I, I mean that's essentially the situation you get put into. You either need to shut down or continue operating at risk of being in violation of the law, mm-hmm. or, or comply, and, mm-hmm. and you know and change your view. You know, I mean we're seeing this in Philadelphia right now, um, uh, where the city decided after receiving no complaints and having thirty different uh, foster care agencies to stop working with the two, you know, Christian. Uh, foster care agencies one of which was catholic and so the catholic social services is in, is in litigation and the other organization changed their policy honestly
1: because the because the the two christian operating adoption agencies would only place children with a fam- married mother and father is that or
2: is that- or technically some would place with single persons under certain circumstances and okay. you still with the open hope that you know that person would could enter into a marriage down the line but they weren't already set in a you know same sex a same sex relationship that was close to that i guess I, another area that i should mention that's affected i do know Act is uh healthcare which you know will impact both catholic hospitals and other healthcare facilities and catholic practitioners of healthcare that you know may you know, work for any other private or secular organization. By not applying RIFRA to the healthcare context, you're at risk of engaging in, you know, enforcing Catholics at the institutional or the individual level to engage in abortion, sterilization, contraception, sex reassignment related procedures, hormonal or surgical. And, you know, and the list goes on there, you know, mm-hmm. just any number of things that they may have a significant moral disagreement with. And you
0: uh, you know, putting, you know, putting people in a very difficult situation there as well. Mm. I mean, it just seems to me like there's, it seems like calling it do no harm, there's something kind of dishonest in a way about it, because it's like that even the concept of dignitary harm, it's interesting, because as Catholics, our document, our text that provides kind of our fullest teaching on religious liberty is called of human dignity and it talks about how religious liberty is rooted in in human dignity and it's kind of like like let's take the case of jack phillips who in the masterpiece cake shop case many people know about he wouldn't bake the custom wedding cake for the same-sex couple and it's kind of like if you you could say well they were their dignity was harmed by not being served at this particular cake shop they have to go to a different cake shop that harmed their dignity but it's kind of like well perhaps in a sense that's true but then at the same time forcing somebody to do something to violate their conscience har, harms their dignity i mean there's a sense in which in a pluralistic society where you're going to have these different kinds of conflicts between people with different moral codes there's a sense in which not everybody is going to get a hundred percent of of what they want. It seems to me, but I don't. I mean, but to not, but to say do no harm is to make it sound like you're not doing any harm to the person who has to violate their conscience or who the person whose religious liberty is affected. And that seems to me to be a kind of dignitary harm. Although I think dignitary harm is kind of, I mean, it's a term of art, right? Like I'm not a lawyer, so maybe I'm not understanding it the right. Yeah, this is way, even the but,
1: word dignity. Like it, w- one of the things that concerns me is people talking about, you know, oh, we give them their dignity by treating them right or we, you know, no, and your your dignity is inherent. There is no way that someone can take away mm-hmm. to the degree that you are a human person made in the image and likeness of oh God, your dignity. That's, you know, so it's so interesting that they're twisting that word like oh, oh this is affecting someone's dignity. Well, no, it might Con, you know affect their feelings or their sense of who they are but objectively speaking they they have dignity that no one can take away
0: yeah i mean i just and it seems to me just like weighing the harms if you if you want to just accept that the version of well not being sold the cake at the first place you go is a harm to you i won't accept that but it just seems to me like that harm of not being served at the first place you go is outweighed by the harm to a person's conscience.
2: It, in in my view, we're we're in a place right now where there's a lot of emphasis on this modern conceptualization of dignity, which has its problems, and also kind of just the feelings that come with that. And and I I noticed it first in the uh, Obergefell case, the uh, 2015 Supreme Court decision that uh, you know redefined marriage nationwide you know it, the justice kennedy's opinion focused so much on how he described human dignity and the you know the feelings you know felt by people with respect to their place in the universe and all of these you know broad stroke terms and the illegitimacy of the you know hostility of you know the state against you know against people and you know not extending this institution uh, and and changing it them in that way, and on the opposite side, then a couple you know a couple years later in the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision that you mentioned, it's you know the opinion was against the hostility of the state against you know Jack mm-hmm. Phillips for you know uh, you know so offending his religion in a very targeted way. Now I'm grateful that they considered that. Mm-hmm. But it's the analysis here is so much just based on whose feelings are getting hurt worse and who's being the more (laughs) Mm -hmm. hostile. And it's, you know, less of a question of like, you know, what's legal or not and what's constitutional Mm -hmm. or not. And and in my view, there's no constitutional guarantee against having your feelings hurt. Mm -hmm. There is a constitutional guarantee against having your feelings. Free exercise of religion abridged. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, what that specifically means in every context can continue to be sorted out, as it has been for you know for many years. But you know, but there is more of a constitutional basis there mm-hmm. than this concern about how you know how people feel. And I and I do think too, um, Mary, that uh, it may have been an Obergefell, but I'm it may have been another case. I think Justice Clarence Thomas, in a dissent on this issue, once wrote you know, with disdain towards some of his fellow members of the court on the, not personally, but on their argumentation that someone's dignity was subject to what the law said about them. And he said, no, like their dignity is inherent Mm. like, Mm -hmm. yes, we want the law to respect
0: people's dignity, but the law doesn't make or break people's dignity. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Oh, good to hear. I like that.
0: Well, I, uh, I want to make sure in our, in the limited time that we have left, that we talk about the Equality Act because that's that's also we know a priority of the new Speaker of the House. Um, so we're expecting movement there in the Equality Act. Can you tell us, you know, what's going on there? Uh, how worried should we be, both about yeah you know, about the law passing? Um, yeah, what's going on? Tell us about the Equality Act. Sure. So the Equality
2: Act is the landmark comprehensive bill. For non discrimination based on, as it terms it, sexual orientation, gender identity. Mm-hmm. It would impose those terms across the whole range of federal non discrimination laws in the Civil Rights Act, the um, Fair Housing Act, as well as jury selection and credit laws and whatnot. And in some of those contexts, then, although we disagree with the anthropology behind, uh, those key terms, sexual orientation and gender identity, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we think there's no harm in jury selection and, and whatnot. But the problems that arise first, I'll just say, are include all those uh, you know, already mentioned in the Do No Harm Act, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with the Catholic or, you know, any faith based um, adoption or foster care agency that is unable to work with same sex couples, the you know, the shelters that recognize the sexual difference between men and women the healthcare uh, field where people may be forced to do procedures mm-hmm. against, you know, against their will and against their conscience and, and really in a lot of cases against their just medical professional judgment, you know, not mm. every, mm-hmm. you know, not every secular, irreligious healthcare person is on board with gender transition-related you know, oh, kind of Oh, especially for children.
1: There's mm-hmm. so much scientific evidence totally against it and many of... Well, anyway, this is another no, topic, but th- many that, have the, spoken yeah. out and said, no, this is crazy. Yeah, this I mean, is the, way too early to be doing gender reassignment surgeries yeah, on the, children. The, the Pediatric Trade Association goes one way,
2: but the body of mo- a lot of the silent majority of pediatricians, it seems like, you know, not necessarily uh, on board with, you know, fully in that consensus, right? right? So or that it isn't a consensus. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but beyond that, uh, the, you know, the act would es- essentially just make it, mandate a national open restroom policy to any one of the uh, opposite sex, you know, how- oh, however no. they identify. Oh, no. Uh, locker rooms, oh. dressing rooms, all of that. Uh, student athletics. So we, you mm. know, have, you know, seen these instances where, you know, people of one biological sex are have an unfair advantage over uh, when they're competing in a sport, uh, des- you know, with designation for the other. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, down the line, it has the potential to also just really kind of regulate speech and thought in that in the for teachers and for and for employers or for people, you know, working service jobs in that they would have to address people by You know their preferred pronoun or Mm -hmm. or whatnot, even if that's you know doesn't reflect the physical biological reality, and you know and and, and treat them as such. And if you don't, you're in trouble for you know using the wrong speech or you know not you know not subscribing to that line of thought. Mm -hmm. Mm. And I think too, uh, you know, even you know kind of further down, you know, the the rabbit hole of where you take the equality acts logic to its extreme. You could potentially put parental rights uh, at risk and, and custody at risk, where parents refuse to go along with uh, the you know medical procedures with a child who's struggling with kind of dysphoric or incro- incongruent um, you know feelings about their sexuality and gender. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we've and we've seen a case out of Cincinnati involving just that, and I think the health care requirements of the Equality Act can kind of lay the groundwork for that on a national scale. Certainly you're a whole range of business people, especially in, you know, the wedding vendor industry. You know, we've seen them get in trouble, the Jack Phillips, the bakers, and Baronell Stutzman, the florist, and Mm -hmm. uh, the young women calligraphers out of Arizona and so many others. All those cases would be, you know, subject to being lost, you know, almost Mm. immediately unless the Supreme Court, like, undid its employment division versus Smith decision from 1990 and came up with a new, First Amendment structure.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I've... I mean, i wondered, even if it were to to pass, well, it's not going to get passed and signed into law in the next two years. Right. Right. But... Because President
1: Trump has said he would veto it or just the... It wouldn't even make
0: it out of the Senate, through the
1: Senate.
2: Okay. Right. right. It's likely to... It's almost guaranteed to pass in the House, but not make it through the Senate or then to the president's
0: desk. Yeah. But if it ever did, I mean, would it... Do you think it would hold up i mean it would certainly be challenged in court right i mean do you think it would make it through a supreme court challenge or is that asking for something like wet looking way too far ahead um, to even imagine
2: it's a plausible aspiration but not something i would bank on yeah yeah i would definitely arrange my strategy <laughs> uh, to not rely upon that although certainly hold hold out some hope for that yeah, absolutely yeah. because yeah, there is you know, I think even even the proponents recognize that this bill, this term of Congress is more of a a messaging piece mm-hmm. uh, to put their stake in the ground. But it, you know, it changes the conversational baseline, you know, going forward for future years. And so it does become a real, you know, a real issue that we need to continue to work against and get the, you know, the, the information out there as to the kind of harms that it would lead to. Um, mm-hmm. Because so, otherwise, just like the Do No Harm Act, the Equality Act sounds Right, it does. It sounds
1: great. But Robert, it sounds to me like the Equality Act is saying, like, basically, anybody can, based on their behavior or what sex they identify as or what, you know, who they're attracted to, like, that can be the determination for what, like, like how they the rights they have and that they are equal to everyone else. And but it it, to me, it sounds like it goes beyond that. It's saying that if you believe differently, you don't have the right to believe that that differently than that
2: right because you're still can believe what you want but it really has to stay in your head you can't right. live out in accordance with your your faith or you're just otherwise you know sincerely held or medically held b- beliefs and judgments
1: or or um, even as a catholic parent mm-hmm. this could restrict your right to teach your children the actual teachings of the of the faith yeah. right well or- and i
2: think even actually catholic, private catholic school teachers could even be at risk of being constituted by people who identify a certain way with or you know orientation and you know identity and enter into same sex marriages not you know not teachers who maybe teach religion proper or who are you know safely under what we call the ministerial exception where the government mm-hmm. can't touch on who is a minister in a religious organization but you know for your pure math teacher for your pure history teacher, like there's some unsettled law there as to to what extent a religious school can make employment decisions about them free of government intervention. And under something like the Equality Act, which explicitly exempts itself from rifra you know, a diocese may not actually have a whole lot of say as to who they're, you know, hiring and retaining, you know, along these lines and what kind of, you know, message they may be, you
0: know, bringing to the uh, to the children. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned the need to kind of work against these things. So what what can lay Catholics do? Like how how can lay people respond to the moment?
2: I think, you know, most immediately and practically is to, you know, be vigilant, uh be critical when you hear or read about, you know, things that sound good or sound reasonable because, you know, truly like you know, we don't want people being, you know, rejected for, you know, jobs where you know, what they do on their off time is completely irrelevant. Or we don't want people like being denied, you know, basic services or basic, basic healing care, Mm -hmm. you know, based on, you know, irrelevant categories or, you know, conduct. And, you know, we want everyone respected and served. But you sometimes have to look at what are the real dimensions of the side effects or, you know, harms being done to, you know, the ability of people of conscious or, you know, other other beliefs to continue to live out and pass down, you know, their faith which, you know, is not, you know, for us is not just this ethereal thing but is like our proposal for real concrete human flourishing at the end mm-hmm. of the day that everyone can benefit from. Mm-hmm. And so really just don't take everything as like, oh, well that sounds good. Like you know, really look into it, consider it, and then certainly, you know, get involved, write, write your, you know, your congressman or your state legislator or your school board member, you know, Mm because this happens at every level, you know, get involved in the community in that way, help other people be aware, not forcefully, but, Mm -hmm. and I also think it really, um, you know, should be said that we also need to demonstrate the goodness and the beauty of our beliefs through our own lives too. Mm So not necessarily proselytizing on the policies here, but also just, you know, demonstrating the best of a Catholic family uh, life and attitude and, yeah, you know, in in the love that, you know, we share with one another, but also in the service that we render to the community and you know, volunteer work or whatnot, just, you know, just really demonstrate the truth that we can be good and we strive to be good because mm-hmm. there's a lot of negative press out there about what Catholics are and what Catholics think yeah. and how Catholics treat people. Well, yeah. and
1: Robert, you're part of a great team in Lady Marriage, Family Life, and Youth, right? I mean, they're part of your coworkers, right, who mm-hmm. um, help out. And the For Your Marriage website is yes. available. And there's lots of prayers on there and resources for um, Catholic families. And so that's, that's may I suggest, that that's mm-hmm. another mm-hmm. thing to do is is to pray in support of healthy marriages and family life. Oh, absolutely.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you for mentioning that. Yes, my, my group is not you know, entirely just based on these, you know, policy, uh, you know, controversies, but we're, you know, very much, you know, want to help provide a pastoral and catechetical resource to dioceses for them to then deliver those, you know, resources and aids
0: and support to, uh, to the laity, you Mm -hmm. know,
2: and parishioners at large. Absolutely.
0: Well, Robert, um, just to close us out, I I mentioned earlier that you've worked in DC for several years. Uh, I didn't realize you'd gone to George Washington. So you've, You've lived in the inside the Beltway uh, for a, a while. Yeah, Are not you con- from or not? Here? not consecutively, not but consecutively. Yeah, no. But you've lived here for many <laughs> years, and you know one of the things I've thought recently is just when when stuff that happens in DC is in the news, you know, people see the images, or they see us, they see the city on television, or they hear, you know, it's referred to sometimes as the swamp or whatever, like. You hear this kind of stuff and it's like, it's, it's almost like an idea, not an actual place where real people live their lives. So I just wondered if you might say like,
1: (laughs) we're uh, robots. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like people
0: don't realize it's like, you know, it's a, it's a city. Yeah. Especially when you get away from the mall. Um, and the monuments and stuff. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's just it looks like a lot of other cities in the Mid Atlantic.
2: Well, it definitely feels like it when you're, you know, waiting for your uh, metro train. You're, yeah, day yeah. On your commute and it's slowed down and breaking down and whatnot. <laughs> yes. And
0: <there's>... yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wonder what what's one thing about Washington that you think might surprise people who who haven't ever been here, don't know much about it.
2: I'd say that it's that the extent to which people actually get along. Mm-hmm. Um and particularly on the hill in my experience, like you have the policymakers, you know debating really forcefully on camera, but behind the scenes, a lot of them are slapping each other on the back and you know uh, you know actually buddies mm-hmm. and and at the staff level too, there's you know a great amount of you know collaboration or if, if you can't work together on a certain policy because you know that's where your bosses and your districts that you represent are. Uh, you can at least discuss it very, you know, very peacefully and very openly and still be friends and people, you know, people that are adversaries, you know, politically and you know, will still go go have dinner together, or go have drinks together and still be, mm-hmm. you know, still be real genuine friends. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I dare think that that's even more so the case today here in Washington than it may be elsewhere in the country where the the disagreements seem to be at quite a fever pitch. Because here in Washington, this is, you know, disagreement has been our business, you know, since the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's in a way it's like uh, to use kind of a mafioso sort of term. It's, it's nothing personal. It's just business. <laughs> yeah, And in a lot of cases, it really is nothing personal. Uh-huh. And I hope that, you know, other people in the country will, you know, will know that and be able to see that the same way. And, you know, living out their own relationships and not have relationships strained based on political things. And that's not to diminish the importance of what we're talking about here. You know, mm-hmm. certainly these have very grave consequences. You know, these are real, you know, human lives that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so there's every right to be passionate. But I think it really is a treasure in our country to
0: still be able to get along and, and work through it. Mm-hmm. Well, that is a hopeful note to go out on. So I think it's yeah. a good, Thanks, Robert. <laughs> good way to end. So thank you so much for, you know, sharing with us. And I definitely think oh, we my will... pleasure. Yeah, we're going to have to have you come back on. Some uh, As you were talking about the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, I, I was coming up with all these other questions I have about that, but but we don't have time to that, – that would be a, a podcast in and of itself. So we'll, we'll definitely have you back on sometime soon. So thanks for joining us. It. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. This is Aaron Matthew Weldon.
1: And I'm Mary McCluskey. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast.